this episode, Sublimation Between Suffering and Pleasure at Work, Christophe Dejour develops his thesis on the psychodynamics of work, which he has particularly deepened. He examines the work clinic from the angle of sublimation, which he breaks down into body preparation, relationship to the other, and relationship to civilization. Sublimation operates in all work, even the most ordinary. It has a powerful effect on identity and mental health. Christophe Dejour shows how certain work organizations, by undermining the subjective spring of sublimation, can destabilize the individual and lead him to a psychological crisis or even to suicide. Finally, he shows how much, according to him, living work, that is to say, work enriched by what the subject adds to the prescriptions to achieve objectives, plays an essential role in the structuring and destructuring of the social link. Christophe Dejour is a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, a full member and training analyst of the French Psychoanalytical Association and a full member of the Institute of Psychosomatics of Paris, Professor Emeritus of the University of Paris-Nanterre and President of the Scientific Council of the Jean Laplanche Foundation, Institute of France. He has carried out numerous research projects in psychosomatics, metapsychology of the body, sexual theory with Jean Laplanche, and in the work clinic. I am Joanna Velt with Talks on Psychoanalysis, the IPA podcast devoted to current topics on psychoanalysis worldwide, featuring the voices of the original authors. This podcast series, published by the International Psychoanalytical Association, is part of the activities of the IPA Communication Committee and is produced by the IPA Podcast Editorial Team. Head of the Podcast Editorial Team is Gaetano Pellegrini. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. Sublimation between suffering and pleasure at work. Clinical investigation on work first developed in France between the two wars and then following the war when it was referred to as the psychopathology of work. Due to the growth of the clinical domain, a new designation was suggested in 1992 namely the psychodynamics of work, in order to bring together all research ranging from suffering to pleasure taken in work and from mental pathology to self-fulfillment through work. The clinical field is very rich and extremely diverse, but the psychodynamics of work is not only a clinical discipline. It is likewise a theory centered on the analysis of the processes in question in the etiology of suffering and pathology, as well as pleasure and health in connection with work. One of the principal theses of this theory was known as the centrality of work for subjectivity. Long ignored, Indeed, rejected by psychoanalysts, 
the psychodynamics of work has grown thanks above all to its comparison to with the other disciplines following ergonomics and the occupational health with sociology uh, the sociology of ethics and the sociology of the gender division of labor anthropology and then philosophy notably the phenomenology of Michel Henry and the Frankfurt school law and more recently economics for around the past two years different schools of psychoanalysis have opened up to the question of work first in France but also in certain European capitals as well as in Canada Brazil and Argentina this new situation is doubtless related to the fact that many psychoanalysts see patients whose initial demand has to do with their suffering in the workplace how can we make room for work issues when the starting point is freudian theory to answer this question it would doubtless be best to begin by the analysis of what in relation to work conveys subjectivity rather than embarking in the investigation of the pathogenic effects of work as is typically typically done when the discussion is aimed at other disciplines it is perhaps more fitting in order to talk about psychoanalysis to examine what the psychodynamics of work can lend to the theory of sublimation it's only afterwards that we may envisage why certain organizations of work by draining the subjective resources of sublimation indeed by fundamentally opposing themselves to it are capable of destabilizing the individual and triggering a psychic crisis at times capable of leading to suicide taking into consideration all the data originating in clinical practice lastly suggests granting to sublimation a specific importance in psychic functioning significantly significantly more important than that which we generally attribute to it in psychopathology and metapsychology work activity and subjectivity we commonly bring into opposition the work of design and the work of execution the first seemingly more noble than the second that the second the distinctions isn't false but it is right nevertheless to emphasize that there is no work of execution if by that we wish to designate an activity requiring unconditional obedience to its dictates procedures or orders everyone everyone who works gets around the rules violates procedure transgresses orders and cheats with the instructions not only by means of an uncontrolled taste for resistance and disobedience but much more frequently in order to perform well for concrete work never appears exactly how the initiators and organizers have thought it up 
There are always unforeseen events, breakdowns, malfunctions, and mishaps in any work. What is described is commonly known as a task. What workers do concretely is the activity. Working in brief means constantly adjusting, adapting, cobbling together and fitting around. The worker who does not know how to cheat or who doesn't dare to do so is a poor professional. For those who stick to the hard and fast execution of the dictates are only working to rule. No business workshop or organization can function if individuals keep to the exact execution of the official procedures. An army whose soldiers are happy with merely obeying the orders is an army defeated. If the nurses strictly carried out the orders of the doctors, there would be many deaths in the hospitals, which precisely they avoid thanks to their diligence. With regard to this approach to work through ergonomics and uh, the clinical investigation on work, it appears that work is what must be invented and added from itself to the prescriptions so that it works. The diligence we're speaking about is nothing other than the living work which no work organization can do without. From this viewpoint, work seems to be an enigma. What must one add to the prescription so that it works? One can never know beforehand, and what is more, this is what must be invented. What does the intelligence call for here consist in? What are its psychological motivations? This constitutes a second enigma. It is due to the investment of subjectivity and diligence that work is never neutral concerning the ego and concerning mental health. It may give rise to the best, to the point that, in certain cases, work becomes an essential mediator in the construction of mental health but it may also give rise to the worst and lead to decompensated mental illness. Put differently, work cannot be thought of as an environment. On the contrary, it infiltrates deep within subjectivity. This is why it is so important for psychoanalysis. Living work. Living work is that which the subject must add to the prescriptions in order to attain the objectives. In fact, work is always encumbered with incidents, the malfunctioning of technical objects, whether nuclear power plant, an airplane or a computer terminal, counter orders, negligence by colleagues of their commitments, last minutes withdrawals by clients, and so on. This is what is called the real of work. The real is what makes itself known to those who work by its resistance to mastery. The experience of the real in the world, that is, of its resistance to mastery, is inevitably acquired 
on the mode of failure. That is, as an effect, as an affective experience through surprise, annoyance, aggravation, irritation, disappointment, anger, or a feeling of helplessness. All these feelings are an integral part of work. They are the basic raw material of an understanding of the world. It is, first of all, effectively, that the real of the world reveals itself to the working subject. Those who are insufficiently sensitive are inevitably blunderers. They break the machines because they don't know how to sense effectively when the machines start heating up. The clumsy caregiver destabilizes the ill person because he does not effectively acknowledge the other's anxiety. To experience effectively the real and thus to know the world, you first off need to have a body because it's with the body that we experience effects. Working is first and foremost failing, but it is furthermore showing oneself capable of putting up the failure, trying other operating methods, failing again, coming back to work, not giving up, thinking about it outside the workplace and accepting a certain impingement by the preoccupation with the real and its resistance even within one's private space. Like young analysts who speak tirelessly and to mat- and no matter where about psychoanalysis, about the practical difficulties of success and successes they encounter, the young project or maintenance engineer in a nuclear power plant must accept being occupied 24 hours a day by the stakes of the work. Working is not only failing, it's also being capable of tolerating failure for as long as necessary in order to find a solution, making it possible to overcome the real. Body appropriation. In truth, stamina for failure is decisive. That is, prior to finding a solution, one must establish a veritable intimacy with the resistance of the real. One must become one with it. And one may show that the enigma of the real, which we see in all work, first requires being appropriated in accordance with specific modalities for being deciphered. Finding the suitable solution is impossible without prior training a subjective and affective familiarity between the body and the real, what the philosopher Michel Henry theorized by the concept of the body appropriation of the world. Corps appropriation, body appropriation. This body appropriation is not only cognitive. The main part of its spirit is played out in a battle with the real. Ultimately, each new configuration of the real encounter in work summons the formation of new skills which the worker had not had till then. So that work understood as output work 
poiesis, in order to be quality work, summons subjectivity down to its most intimate foundations, namely the body as the site of subjective experience. Each skill is in fact the result of an elaboration of the subjective experience of the body grappling with the real. It's the body that bestows its spirit to intelligence. Thus, output production, poiesis, is, thanks to stamina, transformed into in work demand, Arbeitsanforderung, work demand made upon the mind in consequence of its connection with the body. It's from Freud. Assuming that it is in the body that is first experienced the resistance of the real. The Freudian lexicon is filled with appearances of the term Arbeit, work poiesis, implies secondarily the self's own working on itself, work Arbeit, er Arbeiten, durch Arbeiten, which the acquisition of new skills depends on. The pleasure taken in the success of work Arbeit, brought about by work Poiesis, as a hardship for the life of the soul, is tied to the growth of subjectivity. Working is not only producing, it also means transforming oneself. And this self-transformation is essentially the transformation of the way one inhabits one's body. It is further defined by the colonization of subjectivity by work, outside work time, and far as far as insomnia, and even into the economy of love relationships, but further into dreams. Dream work is Traumarbeit, is that period when, thanks to formal regression, the subjective body transforms itself. By toiling with wood, the cabinet maker fills the aromas with his sense of smell and his touch develops registers of sensitivity unknown to the layperson. The sailor, by dint of skimming with the blades, experiences the water, sea swells and waves, the ocean, with a pleasure others are unfamiliar with. By battling with his instrument, the violinist hears in the art of the other virtuoso tones which would have been inaccessible to him before he had struggled with his violin. What I'm saying about working in matter is likewise valid for intellectual work. It's with the body that the teacher or actor feels and follows the attentiveness of the audience and so adjusts bodily know-how, which one designates by the name of dramatic acting, in order to arouse their attention. It's with one's body that one effectively experiences contact with patients and one acquires knowledge about their psychic state, knowledge through the body, an expression borrowed from Bourdieu, who used it to a different purpose. The ways by which everyday work summons forth the subjectivity of the skilled workers constitutes the first level of 
sublimation. Work, cooperation, and deontic activity. Although everything that concerns the solipsistic relationship to the task is in itself particularly complex, limiting ourselves to the analysis of the subjective centrality of work is an unjustified simplification. In fact, work further involves the relationship to others in a great many everyday situations. One works for someone, for a client, manager, one's staff or colleagues. At times, work further involves the collectivity with at its center the question of cooperation. So it is with cooperation as with activity, specifically that there always exists a gap between the prescribed organization of the work, which goes by the name of coordination, and the actual organization of work, which goes by the name of cooperation. Cooperation differs from coordination. It involves a consensual reworking of the prescribed organization. For this to take place, it is necessary for those who do their best to work together in a collectivity or team to rework the division of labor and personal by inventing practical rules that everyone accepts and respects. For lack of time, I can merely comment on all the intermediary links in the construction of cooperation. I can but highlight that this requires that a report, a rapport of trust becomes established among workers. This condition is necessary so that someone who dares to show to others how they work may do so without fearing by making their duplicity known that this will be used against them. Cooperation reposes on a complex activity on confrontation between the different intelligent ways of cheating with the prescriptions. Confrontation directed to the search for agreements and consensus about what is efficient and what is less so, what is good and what is bad or just and unjust. As an activity, it constructs agreements and rules about the way of interpreting orders and prescriptions. One can easily show, based on the analysis of the process of the constructions of rules, that a rule does not only have a technical vocation, concomitantly, concomitantly, it is consistently a social rule that organizes civility and peaceful coexistence. Working is never only producing. It also means living together. Work regulations and conviviality always go hand in hand. We call this activity of the constructions of rules, which consumes a good part of our time and energy, for example in psychoanalytic societies, deontic activity. Deontic activity. We may only speak of the collectivity when there are rules that organize shared activity. It is not if it is not so, it is not a collectivity. Rather it's a group or a crowd, indeed the masses. 
Deontic activity is an integral part of everyday work and it leads to, sometimes, very marked differences between teams and collectivities, between working styles among different schools. Collectivities and the professions practiced in them have a history and this history is nothing other than the history of their rules and their successive transformations. Deontic activity, discussion space, and identity. In order to cooperate, we must take risks, among them that of manifesting oneself, showing what one does and saying what one thinks. This, without a doubt, is about taking risks. But why then do people to, who work accept taking risks instead of working to rule or of working strictly by the letter. Those who join in the ontic activity as in the life of the collectivity and living together, in fact, add a major contribution to cooperation, the work organization, the cooperation or institution, and this extends well beyond society. If they implicate themselves in this way, it's because in exchange for such a contribution, they hope for compensation. Now on this point, the clinical study of work is irrefutable. The compensation that mobilizes the majority of work is not material compensation. It's not that this is unimportant, of course, but this is not what drives them. The expect compensation is first and foremost symbolic com compensation. Its principal form is recognition, understood according to its two meanings. Recognition in the sense of gratitude for the service provided and recognition in the sense of, of judgment as to the quality of the work achieved. Recognition, too, only attains its symbolic effectiveness if it is obtained and conferred according to the procedures whose criteria are extremely precise. I do not have the time to go further into this point, which is well known. I would only like to mention that recognition requires judgment. There exist two forms of judgment. First, the judgment of utility concerning the economic, social or technical utility of the contribution made by a subject to the organization of work. The judgment of utility is important for the subject because it bestows upon him or her status in the organization and the work for, that they work for, and beyond this, status in society. It's also the condition for attaining not only a salary, but social entitlement. To appreciate this, one may refer to the formidable effects of what one understands as being sidelined, that is being relegated to certain subordinate or absurd tasks, indeed prohibited from working, all the while keeping one's salary. Many sidelined professionals are torn apart with shame and the loss of self-confidence and fall into depression. Secondly, the judgment 
of beauty is always proclaimed in aesthetic terms. It's a nicely executed work. It's beautifully crafted. It's an elegant demonstration. It uh, has a lovely style. The judgment of beauty, first and foremost, connotes conformity of the work carried out by the book, by the rules of the trade. This judgment may only be made by others who go by the book and who knows the rules of the trade. It's the most severe judgment by peers, certainly, but it's also what is most sought after. Its impact on identity is considerable. Having received recognition by one's peer, a worker gains admittance belonging to a team, collectivity or professional community. Belonging is that by which work makes it possible to ward off solitude. Henceforth, one can say of such a person that he is a fighter pilot just like other fighter pilots, or that she is a researcher just like other researchers, or a psychoanalyst just like the others. There exists a second component of the judgment of beauty, which concerns recognition by peers of the originality, indeed, of the style of the performance made by the worker. The judgment of originality is naturally the most valuable, that by which is bestowed upon a particular worker an identity attributable to no one else. It differs from the judgment of conformity and, it's, and is granted only when the judgment of conformity has been first pronounced. It is appropriate, nevertheless, to emphasize that what is expected by the worker in the two judgments of utility and beauty is that is it concerned the quality of the service, the quality of the work carried out. It is only secondarily that the subject may bring the judgments in the category of doing back, of doing, back to a judgment in the category of being, of identity. Recognition, for this reason, has a considerable impact on identity. It's thanks to such recognition that, essentially, suffering is transformed into pleasure at work. This has nothing directly to do with masochism, that is, with pleasure achieved through eroticizing suffering. The path that comes with recognition is far longer and is not brought about by sexual co-excitation. Rather, it depends on the other's judgment. The enigmatic terms used by Freud to qualify sublimation take on, through the sharp eye of the psychodynamics of work, a specific meaning. I quote, a certain kind of modification of the aim and change of the object in which our social valuation is taken into account is described by us as sublimation. Standard edition 22, page 97. The way the social value system comes into consideration in sublimation appears to be brought about by the judgments of recognition by others, the judgment of utility and judgment of beauty. The psychodynamics of recognition in work constitutes 
the second level of sublimation and introduces a new dimension into it. The success of sublimation depends in large measure on the other's judgment and the loyalty of the partners of the recognition. Whereas the first level of sublimation, that of body appropriation, is strictly intra-subjective. For many of our patients, post-adolescent identity is shaky, incomplete and immature, and the risk of identity crisis with psychopathological consequences is not far off. This is why work via recognition constitutes in many cases a second opportunity regarding the construction of identity and mental health. A new method of work organization, individual performance assessment. While the colonizing of the working world by new management methods was in full swing, a new method of organization closely tied to managerial theory was introduced into most private business as well as into the public service. This method is presented as an objective means of assessing the individual's work and making it comparable to that of others, other employees. Individual assessment consists in the principle of a quantitative and objective analysis of work by means of measuring results. Work assessment through objective and quantitative measurement methods is predicated on incorrect scientific basis. Such a method of quantitative evaluation is thus false and so it will always be. It thereby gives rise to feelings of injustice with likewise have harmful effects on mental health. But what is most serious is probably found in the effects of this method on collective work, cooperation and peaceful coexistence. Individualized and quantitative performance assessment, in fact, pits one employee in competition against all the others. One colleague's success becomes a threat for another. Each employee is now in it for him or herself and anything goes. Distrust and fear fall upon the working world. Disloyalty becomes banal. Thoughtfulness and mutual aid disappear. People no longer speak to each other. Peer support vanishes. In the end, everyone is alone in the midst of the multitude, in a human and social environment that, quite, then, that quickly takes on a hostile allure. Loneliness falls upon the working world and this makes a radical difference concerning the subjective relationship to work and mental health. Contrary to what certain authors might argue, harassment as work is not new. But if, in effect, the victims of harassment are greatly increasing, it is not due to harassment itself, but rather to loneliness. For, faced with harassment, injustice and even more trivially, the everyday work problems and failures 
that all professional life involves, getting by with the help and solidarity of others and finding oneself alone and isolated and in a potentially hostile human environment is hardly the same thing. The current proliferation of suicides in the workplace is not only the consequence of injustice, disgrace or harassment. It principally results from the atrocious experience of others' silence, of abandonment by others, of the others' refusal to bear witness, of the others' cowardice. Ethical suffering, such is the troubling context in which certain workers begin to accept putting their assiduity in the service of objective that their moral sense condemns. For instance, in order to attain the turnover that they have committed themselves to when they signed a target contract, they must in fact cheat their clients. Or in order to increase the productivity of one's team, the manager must manipulate the subordinates by alternately making promises and threats. To get some help in the art of duping the client or manipulating the subordinates, there exists ad hoc training and scripts appear on the computer screen designed to help the operator divert inconvenient questions asked by clients or in the choice of wording that is most apt at impressing subordinates. In other words, it is henceforth a matter of lying to clients and subordinates and manipulating them on order. Lies and manipulation are prescribed. Whatever the means used or the rules breached, senior management will close its eyes if the turnover goal is attained. In former times, employees would have not accepted obeying these injunctions because they contradicted the values of public service and loyalty with regard to service users. Today, however, they don't move so fast. For everyone, from directors to colleagues, from middle management to the subordinates, consents putting his or her zeal to use for action that moral consciousness condemns. Here begins a new chapter of the clinical investigation of work on ethical suffering, that is, on suffering in relation to the experience of self-betrayal. What is serious here from the psychopathological viewpoint is that an additional barrier of sublimation has been breached. Our scale of social values we saw above refers to recognition. In the first approach we examined, the scale of social values turns on the judgment of the other. The new chapter on ethical suffering makes it possible to better understand the second aspect of the way our scale of social values is taken into account, namely the judgment that the subject makes not only as to the quality of the contribution in relation to production, but as to the ethical value of service. For by their production activity, workers enlist de facto the other's fate 
in order, in particular, that of the client whom one had enjoined to dupe, or that of the subordinate whom one had ordered to put the pressure on. That is, work cannot be reduced to an activity. It implies dimensions that fully appertain to action, understood in the way Aristotle attributed to the concept of praxis, a morally just action. The new pathologies tied to ethical suffering show that behind the term of value is found implicitly designated the ethical underpinnings of sublimation, which enlists what that which in narcissism falls within the realm of self-esteem. This, in a sense, constitutes the third level of sublimation. When living work is effectively judged and deliberately oriented towards respecting life, then the return effects on identity or on the ego are expressed by a growth in self-esteem and self-love. By consenting to put one's zeal in the service of orders and prescriptions that dishonor Kultur, in the double meaning of the German culture and civilization, workers weaken the intersubjective basis of their identity still more and make themselves even more dependent on recognition by the corporation in order to maintain their identity. And de facto, those who are most vulnerable to suicide are those workers who implicate themselves in their job to a greater degree. The loafers, those who do the least they, they can get away with, the idlers do not commit suicide when they fall into disgrace. Clinical research on work by becoming an investigation of suicide in the workplace suggests that work engages the subjectivity and identity of all those who are authentically involved in the hard work ethic. Work can give rise to the best when it opens onto sublimation and makes it possible to bear a socially valued activity through the end. Suicide in the workplace has only recently made its appearance. The first recorded instances in France going back to 1994-95. This is a historic turning point insofar as it marks the appearance of ethical suffering among those who are led by the new forms of work organization to experience self-betrayal. Living work and social theory. The historic turning point constitutes a threat to individuals, but it is likewise a threat to civilization insofar as it underscores the possibility of breaking up the continuity between everyday work and culture. Culture, in fact, is that which in human works is accumulated over time in order to respect life. And human works are and will always be the result of work, provided that it is not only production work or poiesis, but also the result of an arbeit, 
that is the necessity of the self's own working on itself and Arbeitsanforderung, which stamps production or work with the mark of subjectivity. Or to put it differently, the work of culture, Freud's Kulturarbeit, not only consists in works accomplished by the Große Männer, that is, the painters and sculptors, the composers and philosophers, the thinkers and researchers. The production of the works of the culture also comes about through relationships of cooperation and transmission, and sometimes involve the participation of a great many individuals, whether it be to build the pyramids or suspension bridges, construct cities and institutions, restore historic monuments, or put the final touches on the performance of an opera. When instead of bringing together the everyday individual contributions enthusiastically, participating in a shared piece of work, a corporation or institution dismantles the good relations necessary for cooperation. And when it drives certain individuals to suicide, to suicide, Kulturarbeit is no longer on the agenda. What comes into shape is quite rather the specter of the corporation's bankruptcy or the institution's collapse. And if it is not possible to hold this process, from continuing the decadence of culture. And thus, there exists not neutrally of work concerning good relations. Either work through deontic activity functions as a powerful means for creating and transmitting social ties of cooperation, or it destroys these social ties and gives rise to Desolation, loneliness, in the Hannah Arendt's meaning. Conclusion. We can draw several conclusions from this journey through clinical research on work and sublimation. First, sublimation is not uniform, but may be broken down into a first level in which is found principally involved the relationship of self to self between body appropriation and an increase of the powers of the body. A second level is in which is found principally involved the relationship to the other between recognition and the reinforcement of identity. And the third level in which is found principally involved the relationship to society, culture and civilization between Kulturarbeit and the fulfillment of ipsaite, ipsaite and self-fulfillment. Second, sublimation is not the preserve of the große Männer alone. It is present in all work whenever, that is, work is directed toward the search for quality and whenever, in order to accomplish this, it struggles to respect professional conduct is the professional ethos. Thirdly, sublimation, when restricted to the first two levels, that of the body appropriation of the world and that of recognition by the other, constitutes ordinary sublimation. 
having a vigorous potency over identity and mental health, it may sometimes be achieved even though this striving for quality is put to use for the worst. Manufacturing weapons of mass destruction, for example, or keeping the train running to transport human chattel to the crematoria. On the other hand, when sublimation is deliberately ordered out of concern for respecting life and assumes the demands of Kulturarbeit, sublimation in the, in the classic meaning of the term takes shape which one may qualify of extraordinary sublimation. Fourth, sublimation is a potential supplier of essential benefits for mental health in terms of the growth of registers of body sensitivity, identity and self-love. Conversely, working organizations that impede sublimation, such as Taylorism or the individual performance assessment, are harmful to mental health. They can be no work neutrality concerning mental health, either it gives rise to the best through the intervention of sublimation or it gives rise to the worst through ethical suffering leading to the shattering of self-love and suicidal acts.